Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is generously sponsored and hosted by 2d6.org, one of the best sites on the internet for board game news, reviews, commentaries, walkthroughs, and interviews. That's www.2d6.org. The Long View is also generously sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Thor and his family will be happy to meet all of your board gaming needs at www.gamesurplus.com. And be sure to mention The Long View if you place an order. Uh, My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm your host for The Long View, and tonight I am very pleased to be joined by none other than Eric Summerer. Hi, Jeff. How's it going? I'm doing great. Thank you very much. I uh, really want to say thank you for uh, agreeing to appear on the show. Sure. And I was really kind of curious when I started recording more and more episodes of The Long View, and I've been a longtime listener to The Dice Tower, and I have heard you, of course, talk an awful lot about a certain game, that game being Merchant of Venus. Once or twice, yes. Yes, just just a few times. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to send an email and see if you would be interested in coming on the show and talking about this, which I would assume is one of your most favorite games. So I was very pleased that you accepted the invitation. And I'm looking forward to having the chance to explore this game with you because it's one that I'm very intrigued by because I've never actually had the chance to play it. Okay. I've come close a few times. As a matter of fact, I bumped into you at ConCon last year Mm -hmm. and had the pleasure to say hello and sort of introduce myself. But uh, you were busy getting ready to play a game of Merchant of Venus. I believe it was your set, your pride and joy. Yep. And unfortunately, there was no more room at the table. So alas, once again, I didn't have the chance. Yeah, but you got that reprint coming. So you're going to have a lot more chances to play in the next few months. Absolutely. And that is something that, you know, I've been looking forward to for quite some time. And I was also very pleased uh, with how the whole situation with Merchant of Venus turned out with the dual sort of publishing uh, question of of who is going to be able to publish that game. And I think, uh, as has been stated by yourself, I believe, and many others, you know, kudos to both uh, Fantasy Flight and Stronghold Games for how they've resolved that situation, uh, because it could have been a very difficult situation and one that which uh, one that would have delayed the release of this game for fans f- for a very long time and would have made it impossible for people like me to have the opportunity to play it. Mm-hmm. So, Eric, the first thing that I would like to ask you, if you don't mind, is for people like myself who haven't really had the chance to play it, and for people who may be a little bit unfamiliar with the game, could you perhaps tell us a little bit about the theme of the game and how the game is played, what the goal of the game is? Um, You know, obviously not a a huge amount of detail. I don't think we have the time to get into all that, but (laughs) could you give us an overview? Well, uh, the Merchant of Venus is a race game at its heart. Uh, It's a space-based pick-up-and-deliver game, meaning you're flying around the galaxy and you're buying goods from some cultures and then flying them off to drop them off with other cultures. And the reason it's a race is that you are racing to a specific total of cash. Uh, Basically, that's usually 2,000 space credits, uh, but you can play a shorter game to 1,000. You can play epic games to 3,000 or 4,000 if you really like what's going on. Uh, But whoever gets to that total first, they win the game. 
And that's that's about it. It's a it's a pretty straightforward economic race, and it's all about finding the most efficient routes through the galaxy, finding those efficient ways to get where you're going, and doing it faster than the other players. So, if at its heart it is a pick up and deliver game, what is it that you feel sets this game so far apart from other games that use pick up and deliver as the sort of core mechanism in that game? Well, the theme, for one thing, helps. There aren't that many pick-up-and-deliver games in space, but also there's an exploration aspect to this game. At the beginning of the game, you don't know where any of these cultures are. There's 14 different cultures in the game, and each culture trades to uh, the next three uh, cultures in sequence. They're all numbered. So uh, culture number one is going to sell to cultures two, uh, three, and 4A and 4B. And so you don't know where those other four, you buy something at culture number 1A or 1B, and you don't know where it can be sold yet at the beginning of the game. And so you're trekking off into the unknown, discovering these cultures, and then building your trade routes. So there's this extra layer of adventure in the game, and I, I think that's, that's really what drew me in. A, a lot of other pick-up-and-deliver games are much more straightforward. You know that you want to get from point A to point B, but in Merchant of Venus, you don't know where point B is yet. And taking the risk of buying a good that you don't know where it's going or buying one that has to go halfway across the galaxy in order to get a better reward is the whole key to the game. So unlike other pickups and deliver games such as, uh, you know, I think of a lot of the train-based games, uh, sure. railways of the world and things of that nature, where you know where the different city locations are. Here you're saying it's, it's if you are building into the wilderness, as it were, yeah. and you don't know where the connections are going to be, or even if you are going to find that connection where you expect it to be because everything is randomized. Is that true? Yes. At the beginning of the game, the 14 cultures are completely randomized. Every game is going to be a slightly different possible trade route uh, for, for as you move your way through the game. Interesting. Okay, so as you said then, that really adds a different layer to this than most pick-up-and-deliver games uh, that, that I've at least played. There may be others out there, but uh, how, how strongly do you feel that the theme of this game, you know, one of the things I like to look at is the theme, and you're talking about these different cultures. Is there anything to the actual gameplay where these sort of other cultures come through? Are they fleshed out in any way, or is it more of an abstraction? Well, a lot of it is just flavor uh, text. The rule book, original rule book, has histories for all of these cultures. Uh, they've got cute little drawings and illustrations. Uh, the, the titles of the various goods are quite entertaining. You've got megalith paperweights and melf pelts and the humans. They sell rock videos. So you, you get a lot of flavor <laughs> through that. Um, and I think the theme really comes through in, in the way you augment your ship and you're heading off into more dangerous areas of space, which may have good rewards, but they're also a lot harder to navigate through. Uh, I do find it interesting, though, even though I think this theme really matches the game, uh, I've heard that Richard Hamblin designed this originally as a classic trading in the Mediterranean game that uh -oh. was more about the space trade or the spice trade and not the space trade. Uh, I, I think it's far improved making it in space, but it's interesting to see that that was its origin. Yes, especially since there's another podcaster that I know of quite well who may not have liked this game at all had it been about trading in the Mediterranean. I, I don't know who you're talking about. It. <laughs> 
I think there's some initials. I'm I'm seeing a T and a V. I'm not really sure, but uh, I could be mistaken. I don't know anybody like that. <laughs> well, uh, there's something else interesting that you you brought up there. Is there a uh, level of customization you said to your ship. So is there also the ability to kind of uh, outfit your ship or tweak it in a way that will perhaps give it a competitive advantage over others in this game? Well, sure. Uh, and I should probably note that we are talking about the original Avalon Hill game right now. We're, we're, I guess, disregarding the new Fantasy Flight version for now. We could talk about that later. But the original game, you start out with a ship called the Scout, Uh, The Scout has two cargo spaces in it, and it rolls three dice when you go to move. But you can also buy different ships. You can go to a culture that sells uh, ships and and purchase the, uh, the Clipper which rolls four dice and has two cargo spaces. Or you can get one that rolls three dice and has three cargo spaces. You can even get one that has five cargo spaces, but it's only going to roll two dice. Mm -hmm. So there's that level of customization, and you can buy equipment that fits on these ships and takes up some cargo space, like drives that allow you to skip spaces on the board. All of the dots on the board are color-coded. There's blue dots and yellow dots and red dots. If you buy a yellow drive you will skip all yellow dots from that point forward. Same with the red drive. You can even get a combo drive that lets you skip red and yellow dots. This, of Mm. course, costs money and it costs cargo space, but the trade-off is that you're moving around space more efficiently. So it's it's certainly an improvement over other players, but there's different directions you can go in improving your ship. You might go for more cargo space, but a slower ship, so you need to mitigate that with better drives. Uh, or you may just go for the fastest clipper with rolling those four dice all the time and, and try and move as quickly as you can, as efficiently as you can, without buying a bunch of extra equipment. So it sounds like there's some real choices for you to be made there, and I'm assuming that some of those choices are going to be driven, perhaps, and please tell me if I'm wrong because I haven't played the game, by how the exploration phase ends up and where your destinations for various types of cargos might be, yes? Sure. Uh and, and there's also, I mean, you can go into a game of Merchant of Venus with an idea that uh, I think I'm going to go with the clipper strategy or I'm going to go with a freighter strategy and, and get some drives early and, and I'm going to buy that freighter as quickly as I can and go for the big hauls in the game. But that doesn't necessarily work out because there's so much randomization at the beginning. Not only are the cultures randomized, but there's also various hazards. Uh, there are these question mark tiles that go in specific points in the, in the board, but you don't know what's under them. They might be more hazards, more difficulty flying through space, but they may also be these relics, that sort of space junk that you run into and can augment your ship with. Uh, and really nice bonuses if you happen to find those. Or telegates that are sort of warp points that show up around the board and that may lead you in certain directions and change that initial strategy that you may have you may really want to buy the clipper that fast little fast ship but you don't find any of the cultures that sell that ship and so you're sort of pushed in a different direction i think merchant of venus is a lot more about seizing opportunities than it is about sticking to a long-term strategy so uh, there's more tactical decisions to be made based on how the board space evolves over the early part of the game and, of course, based on how the other players are playing and what strategies they appear to be uh, gravitating towards, yes? Yeah, well, I mean, you certainly, <clears throat> if you see that someone is going for the, the freighter strategy and they are really building toward that, if you aren't that close to following them into that path, it may be better to go 
in another direction and go for the Clipper strategy and try and move faster around the board while they are still building up their their infrastructure. I mean, the the freighter is all about big loads, but it moves slowly and it needs to use what are um, we haven't talked about spaceports yet. It, when you're landing on a planet, when you first start the game, you have to land on planets and take off from planets, and that takes extra movement. Uh, but there are these spaceports that can go sort of orbiting the planet, and that lets you not have to land on or take off from a planet, but also you get commissions for going to these spaceports. And so if you have this freighter strategy where you're moving more slowly, you need to have these spaceports, and that takes a little bit more time to set up that infrastructure. But if you see someone doing that, maybe you go for the clipper strategy, and you just start flying from planet to planet. You don't care if you have to land and take off. You can sort of capitalize on your speed a little bit better, and maybe you'll reach that 2,000 before the other guy can even get their engine moving. So it sounds as though, uh, you know, again, one of the things that I like to take a look at when uh, I'm looking at a, a game for the long view is I, I use this sort of framework that uh, a board game geek user Oliver Kiley developed, and I sort of have adopted it. And one of the things that, you know, uh, he mentions is this idea of what's the decision space in a game. And it seems as though there's quite a, quite a lot of decisions to be made um, in that, you know, what kind of ship... Uh, where are the goods that you're looking to pick up and deliver uh, located? Where is the market for them? And then you also describe this rather interesting, at least to me, this kind of point-to-point movement system that's printed on the board and color-coded in what seems to be kind of an elegant fashion in mm-hmm. that some of these uh, uh, ship improvements can allow you to uh, move much more efficiently across this map, which is going to, of course, uh, increase your speed. And it seems as though because you introduced the game as as a race game, which kind of blew blew me away because I I never really had heard that about that. I just always heard the pick up and deliver part. But clearly there is a speed element to this game. Well, sure. Uh, and and there's I like to call this a lot of risk versus reward aspect of this game because there's lots of dangers out there. And, and I, I sort of mentioned the areas on the board that are a little bit harder to navigate but have more rewards. They have more of those relics I was talking about or, or possibly uh, better places to get to. And it is harder to move through those spaces reliably. So if you decide to head into the cloud, which is one particular area of the board that has a lot of these nav circles, navigation circles, and you need to roll certain values in order to go the direction you want to go, so you're taking the chance that you're not going to roll those values and may end up skittering off into space in some direction you did not originally intend to go. But the... the flip side of that is that you may find something very lucrative in that area of space. And that's a decision you certainly have to make. Every time, do I take the most direct route that may cause some problems for me, or do I take a longer, safer route, or do I take more time and buy a shield or buy a red drive? Something that's going to make it a little easier for me to move around the galaxy. Interesting. Um, So it sounds as though there's quite a lot of uh, dice used in the game. How much of this game would you say is uh, luck dependent and how much is controllable by the players? And, And one of the reasons I want to ask that is because 
you know, uh, this game, of course, is is a uh, vintage kind of a game. This mm-hmm. game has been around for a long, long time. And dice have recently, uh, you know, in my sort of evolution through the hobby, I kind of entered the hobby at the diceless phase of <laughs> the diceless Euros. And now dice seem to be making a comeback quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've noticed about uh, game design that use dice is that most games that have dice in them now, there's a way to mitigate the luck factor of the dice. So in right. other words, in Stone Age, you have tools. Um, in uh, Castles of Burgundy, you have worker tiles. And and so there's these ways of kind of mitigating die rolls. Is there anything like that in Merchant of Venus? Or are the dice a little bit more perhaps unforgiving? Or are, am I overstating their importance? Uh, well, certainly dice play a huge role in this game. Every time you start your turn, you pick a direction for your ship. You say, I'm headed in this direction, and you roll the dice that are associated with your ship. I said uh, that your starting ship has three dice. You can get the big freighter that only rolls two or the, uh, the, the clipper that has four. And you roll all those dice, and that's how much you get to move that turn. And possibly uh, the pilot numbers you're able to use to go through those navigation circles or through those telegates. And so you can, for one thing, mitigate the dice luck by getting a faster ship. You can also go exploring to find some of those relics. There's a relic called the mulligan gear that lets you re-roll one of your values. There's one (laughs) called the autopilot that automatically you get to set one of your dice to a four. You just say at the beginning of your turn, here you go, this is a four. Uh, And so it's slightly better than the average, and you at least know for sure that you're going to be able to go in the number four direction in those nav circles. Uh, So there's ways like that. There aren't as many as maybe some people would like. Uh, But there's a possibility, which is another reason why you might want to go into the cloud or the asteroid field, those more dangerous spaces on the board, because getting one of those relics adds a significant amount of reliability to your movement around the board. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, I got to tell you, any game, you know, as a bad golfer, any game that features something called the Mulligan Drive, <laughs> I, I really have to give, I got to give a lot of credit to that because that's just a fantastic uh, name for something there. And it sounds as though from what you're describing to me, there's a decent amount of humor oh, uh, yes. that was written into the design of this game. Uh, certainly. And and a lot of it's just flavor. Uh, and it, it's, I mean, it's not over the top funny, but it, it does have a sort of tongue-in-cheek approach, uh, and, and the names of the various goods, of course, are, are part of that, and, and just the sense that all of your best-laid plans may not work out in this game. And uh, it, it is a lighter aspect compared to something like Age of Steam or the 18xx games. Uh, you know, you, you have best-laid plans, and they may work, they might not. In fact, one of my first games of this... I got lost in the cloud. I just could not roll the the numbers that I needed to to get where I wanted to go. There are some directions if you just if you want to get from point A to point B and the clouds in the middle, you can get in a whole lot of trouble. And I think two or three turns, I was just circling the cloud trying to find my exit ramp and I couldn't. But the the really strong point about this game is I came back to it. It was frustrating, yes, but there was still that charm that had me saying, oh, well, next time, even though the dice hosed me this time, I'm coming back. 
So it sounds like in, a, in addition to the humor that there's quite a lot of element of fun and excitement to the game. I mean, I remember being at ConCon and listening to your table, and I have to tell you, it was a little on the raucous side there, Mr. <laughs> Summer. Well, sure. I mean, when it, when it comes down to... I I'm tr- I talked about this race aspect. Um, we haven't talked about demands. There's, there's this ingenious economic system to this game. You've got a bag that is full of demand tokens. And these are little tokens that say, this culture really wants the finest dust, and they're willing to pay extra for it. And every time you sell a good, you throw one token, the, the goods token, into this bag, and you pull a token out. It might be one of the goods that you just threw in the bag, which means that culture just produced more of that thing, or it's one of these demands. And these demands can start to stack. You might see two of them, three of them for a particular good. And the way the rules work, if you come with a truckload of finest dust and they have three demands for the finest dust, the first good you sell, you get the regular price plus three of those demands. The next one you sell, you get the regular price plus two of those demands. Only one of the demands goes away each time you sell. So if you have a whole bunch of demands and a whole lot of that good, you're going to clean up. That causes a race to specific points around the board so that people can cash in. And if you're the first one there, if you cash in on those demands, the guy behind you doesn't get those demands, which is a huge Mm -hmm. deal in a race game. So you are watching those other players and zooming around the board and getting there first to beat them to that demand. Fantastic. So it seems like they're really, this is, uh, uh, I've called them in other podcasts uh, of different games that I've talked about. There are some games that I call standing games where there, there's, a, there's enough excitement that's generated by the game, uh, either just from a sheer sort of a fun kind of a factor, like King of Tokyo, for example, or from an intensity standpoint, like Dominant Species, where I kind of find myself standing. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can't even really sit at the table. And it sounds like this game kind of has that sort of factor to it because of that race element and because... Everyone, uh, you know, it sounds like has a shot because I'm assuming, uh, let's say you said dust was was one of these uh, commodities that uh, a planet might be looking for. The finest. So if dust, I have yes. a sh- the fine, I'm sorry, the finest dust, not just any old dust that is sitting in you know my living room as I sit here and, and look around. Um, so the finest dust is this commodity that that uh, this world really wants, and I'm assuming that if I have this you know clipper ship that has one of these kind of uh, uh, goods that's stored upon it, then. I'm still going to make out really well if I'm the first one there Mm -hmm. when there's a triple stack. So, you know, all players are probably going to therefore be interested. In other words, all players who have that type of good on their ship are probably going to be very vested in trying to get there, which only serves to add to the tension and the excitement in the game, yes? Sure. And, And there's also that aspect of, I know you're headed over here. I know you've got a truckload of this. Can I get there faster than you? Do I think I have a better ship? Do I have a better path? Or do I go to one of the other three or four planets that buys that particular good and let you have it? Which is one of those decisions that you're talking about. Every turn, you're like, do I continue with my plan? Or is it just a better idea for me to cut my losses and go somewhere else? Maybe a closer planet 
that doesn't have those demands, but I'm going to move on to my next delivery faster than you are, even though you get an extra 50 bucks, an extra 100 bucks. So there's a, a definite aspect then of read and react to this game, if, if I'm understanding you correctly. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You, you need to watch what the other players are doing. And, you know, there's not a lot of direct interaction. It's all about blocking other people off, taking those rewards before the other guy, watching how quickly mm-hmm. the other people are moving and maybe changing your strategy as the pace of the game increases. Okay, so while we're on the subject of players, let's talk a little bit about player interaction in this game because you just said there's not a lot of direct player interaction. However, it seems to me, uh, and this is one of the criticisms that I I have heard of the new version of Merchant of Venus. Maybe we'll open that little box a little bit. Okay. Is that the new version, if, if I'm not mistaken, is to be played with up to four players. Correct. And yet the original version, I think, uh, how many people could you play with in the original version? Up to six, although I never, or I shouldn't say never, but I rarely play the original Merchant of Venus with more than four players. Uh, I, on occasion... Really? Okay. On occasion... Because this is one of those games that it's it's a playtime based on the number of players. If you have an additional player, it's going to take an extra 30 to 60 minutes per player. Because uh, mm. when it's somebody's turn, you don't really do anything on anyone else's turn. They make their moves, they move around space, and then it moves to the next player. And so the more players you have at the table, okay. the longer this game goes. And with more players, options for the fifth or sixth player really start to diminish. And uh, it's, it's less fun for those later players. As you see, the first few players gobble up some of those early discoveries. I, I haven't even mentioned that when you discover a planet, you get what's called an IOU, which is like free cash to be used at that civilization. So if you are one of the first persons to to hit a section of space you're getting a bunch of free cash and since cash is the way you mm. win the game you it's right. a good thing to be finding those ious and if you're fifth or sixth player getting those ious is is a lot trickier if you've got four people in front of you interesting because you know where i was going with that when i first kind of started uh, uh, phrasing that question was you know it sounded to me that this was a game that was an example of the more the merrier you know on the outside looking in and listening to how you describe the competition for the resources and or, or the goods uh, and the competition as far as trying to find the best path around the board and whatnot you know and that even though you said there's not a you know direct player interaction or, or interference there's a, quite a lot of blockage and and quite a lot of uh, cutting people off and uh, you know that's the race element of the game. So to my mind, I was thinking, okay, maybe Fantasy Flight made a mistake by having it only be to four players because it sounds like a game, uh, as most good race games are, that would be better with more players. But your argument actually is that you feel it's best maybe with four. I think it's best with three or four. I mean, probably best is three. Uh, Because, I mean, all those aspects that you're talking about are there. You get lots more interaction, uh, and and that is an interesting aspect of the game. Maybe if people move quickly in a five-player game, you can, you know, keep that feeling. But I think the trade-off between playtime and that interaction aspect you're talking about, it tips toward a a negative aspect of playtime when you have the fifth and sixth player in the game. The only times I have played five players, I play to a much lower total, maybe 1,000 or 1,500, just to keep the game moving at a good clip. So I don't think it's a mistake for Fantasy Flight to have limited it to uh, one to four players, just because it keeps 
I mean, the Fantasy Flight version is already on the long side, and I think adding a fifth or sixth player would completely negate any fun that you could be having with it. Uh, so, so I think it's fine that they, they went with one to four. Okay. So, uh, and I, I think, you know, based on what I'm hearing from you, that uh, I would have to uh, agree with what you're saying if it's true that, you know, on your turn, uh, you're going to be doing all sorts of, of tactics. You're going to be making tactical decisions. You're going to be making strategic decisions. You're going to have that visceral excitement of rolling the dice and seeing what happens. Did I get caught in the cloud? Did I not? Um, you know, did I make that delivery uh, that I was just barely ahead of my competitor on? But then it sounds as though you know, you're saying that there's a lot of downtime during other players' turns because there's really nothing much for you to do at all. Yeah. So... In that case, then I, I guess, yes, uh, I can clearly see that uh, it might be actually better with fewer players. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the reason I kind of came to that conclusion is that, you know, from the outside looking in, I mean, I've seen Merchant of Venus played at the WBC mm-hmm. uh, every year that I've been there. I've seen it played at CanCon, um, and I've heard it talked about so much, and yet every time that I see the game, it's always just this huge table of players. And I guess I would have to attribute that then to the fact that the game is rare, it's hard to find and everybody wants to play it. It's true. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that that ends up maybe uh, being a suboptimal experience. So you're uh, so, OK, I'm going to force you to choose now, Eric, three or four. What's your what's your gut say on that? If I had to choose three. I think it's a, I think it's best as a three player game. Uh, you still get that interaction, that race aspect, uh, but you keep the game. I've played three player games to four thousand and done that in about two and a half hours, and that's pretty fast for this game. Uh, four is no problem either. Uh, they're really close, but if you had to choose, three players is the way to go. Okay. Now I want to circle back to something you said a moment ago because you, you you piqued my curiosity a little bit. You seem to imply that when playing with perhaps four, five, or six players, that there is a disadvantage to going later because of the discovery tiles and the bonuses that you get mm-hmm. uh, for these discoveries. Is there anything in the game or perhaps in the new Fantasy Flight version that would level that advantage in any way? Because uh, that sounds like that could be a, a, a problem um, if it wasn't addressed. Do you, do you see that as a problem or are these bonuses not significant enough to really affect the long-term outcome of the game and therefore it's not a big deal? It, it tends to even out, but uh, there is... At the very beginning of the game, everyone starts at the galactic base, and there are three paths out of the galactic base. There's sort of a northern route, there's a uh, a western route, and then there's an eastern route that goes into the cloud. And if you go into the cloud, you may scatter off in uh, two or three different directions. So there are routes to take for three or four players. If you see somebody, you know, hits those first two really easy jumps to planets, you might go into the cloud. Uh, So for three or four players you can probably find places to go and have a relatively good chance of reaching somewhere useful on your first turn. They do incorporate uh, in the Fantasy Flight version a popular fan variant that I've actually played with for some time now that the third and fourth players in the game start with slightly more money. Uh, The basic rule is that you start with 20 bucks per player, uh, but then the 
third and fourth player get an extra 20 and an extra 40, respectively. And I think that mitigates the the disadvantage pretty well because the IOUs, again, are free cash. So getting a little bit more cash for those later players mitigates that slight disadvantage. It tends to even out, though. It's not really that big a deal. The Fantasy Flight version does add that as a basic rule, though. Excellent. Okay, well, well, thanks for clearing that up because that's something that... Uh... Uh, I was I was sort of curious about is is whether or not that there was an, uh, some sort of a, a correction mechanism uh, for the table order in a game. It seems like that has come up before in other games that I've looked at. So I appreciate you sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that that I want to ask you about is uh, you know one of the the themes of the long view is trying to find games that have longevity, and so. I, I want to just put the question directly to you, which is, to what do you attribute the longevity of Merchant of Venus? I think it really comes down to that random aspect of the game. Every time you play, those planets are in a different place. The rewards are in a different place. It's all a big mystery at the beginning where the the adventure lies. Uh, you, you may head north at the beginning. You may head into the cloud. You may go relic hunting in the asteroid field. And sometimes relic hunting is going to get you an amazing advantage for the rest of the game. The one time I've played with Mr. Tom Vassell... He, he went relic hunting everywhere he possibly could and found nearly every relic in the game and sailed to victory. But just as easily, that could have been running into hazard after hazard after hazard, which would have slowed him down, sapped his money, and made it impossible for him to win. So taking those risks... Is that valuable relic going to be in the cloud this time? Maybe, maybe not. Is... What are my chances of finding a place to deliver this good from this place in one of the two or three planets that are next to me? And that changes every time. There are some basic strategies that you can try and hold on to, but you really need to go with the flow. You can plan a couple turns in advance, at the beginning of the game at least, uh, but you really need to seize those opportunities as they come up and build those trade routes based on the way the board looks at the moment. So variability then is what you feel um, is one of the contributing factors to the longevity of the game. And I, I, I find this interesting because um, I just spoke with Tom about Cosmic Encounter, uh, one of his favorite games, and he pointed to that as well. Mm-hmm. Eh? This, the, the notion that the variability of the alien powers that were coming up and the variability of the players themselves and how they were going to interact meant that you were going to have more than likely a different experience every game. And I'm wondering if, you know, there's something to this because I look at some sort of almost perfect information uh, games that are considered very important kind of classic games. Like I look at something like Puerto Rico. Now, Puerto Rico is a game that I enjoy quite a bit, Mm -hmm. but the more I play it, the more constricted I feel by my own developing understanding of the strategies of that game. Whereas when you get a game... Uh, that has either like some sort of a variable board setup or some sort of variety uh, or randomization, it seems to be a recipe for longer term success. So I want to draw a parallel here 
perhaps between Puerto Rico, which is a game that I respect and, and enjoy, uh, but also a game like El Grande. And see, to me, with El Grande, you know, you don't know exactly how the cards are going to come out each mm-hmm. game. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't know who is going to bid what. Uh, and how important that uh, opportunity that is presented by the cards in El Grande are going to be to an individual player. So, you know, there's such variety and variability in there that that game ends up feeling fresh as well. So um, thinking back on some of your other favorite games, I'm going to depart a little bit from Merchant of Venus here. Mm -hmm. Do you see a common thread there? Do you... Uh, seem to find that games that stick with you have this variability, or is this more of an isolated um, sort of a, a sort of a phenomenon for you? Uh, that's a, I guess a tricky question. I, I really don't like games that seem to have the same path every time you play them. Uh, I mean, they get old. If you if if you're playing a game twenty times and they all seem to follow the same arc, well, yeah, you're going to get bored pretty fast. Uh, my number two game is Power Grid, and so I'm trying to draw some parallels there. There's a lot of variability in the different maps you can play, and there's a, certainly a, a good amount of variability in the way those power plants come out in the game. And and I think that's mm-hmm. that's where things really come into play and make each game different, because you don't know, once you get past those first 13 or so power plants, you don't know what's going to come out. Maybe something really, really good is going to show up when you're the last bidder in a round, and you may luck out and get a terrifically efficient plant. Or you may take that risk uh, in being the last player and, and waiting to see if a really good plant comes up, and it's nothing that you would possibly want to purchase at that point in time. Also, based on where the other players build, which sections of the board are in play in that particular game, there's a lot of variability in Power Grid as well. So I, I think there is something about, at least for long-term play, for something you're going to play a lot of, you can't have it be the same game every time. You have to have something that's going to offer a new challenge each time you play it. Do you think this also could maybe be a reason why we've seen such a proliferation of card games recently? Uh, you know, card games seem to, you know, of course, just from the the, the nature of the shuffle, mm-hmm. the nature of the draw seems to give that kind of variability. Um, you know, looking at games like Dominion or Race for the Galaxy, um, or, you know, or, or Glory to Rome or, or what have you. Is this maybe something that designers are are tapping into? You think this this idea of variety equaling longevity? Ah, uh, well, it certainly seems to be Donald X Vaccarino's path to fame. Uh, between Dominion and Kingdom Builder and uh, Nefarious, with all sorts of variability. Uh, you know, each time you play, there are different parameters that you need to work under, and I, I think that's. That's working very well for him right now. Uh, I don't know if I see a major trend in in the uh, proliferation of card games, but you might have a point. You've got me thinking. Yeah, it is interesting. And, and you know, you mentioned uh, some of uh, uh, Donald Vaccarino's games, and, you know, Dominion was the one that leapt to mind to me because when I think of variability and variety, my mind naturally gravitates towards Dominion because when you do the math, I think my wife actually looked on online because uh, neither of us are that fantastic at math, I guess. And, uh, you know, she looked online just with the base set trying to see, okay, what are the total possible combinations yeah. of cards that you could 
could see. And it was some ridiculous number just with the base set alone. Oh, yeah. Um, and now, of course, with all of the expansions, that that's only increased probably you know exponentially at this point. However, um, you know, so so that variety, if my theory is correct, you know, is what's going to lead to longevity and uh, long term sort of uh, you know a long term satisfaction with the game because you're not going to get that samey feeling you're talking about. However, you also brought up nefarious. And, you know, Nefarious kind of was close to uh, one of my larger disappointments of the year so far um, in that I think the plot twist cards are a wonderful way to introduce a little bit of variety Mm -hmm. into each game. But I think the key term there was a little bit. In other words... Uh, maybe I'm wrong. You know, maybe I'm putting too much into this variability and variety because there is a decent amount in that game. But if you've played that game any amount of times, uh, really the only thing that keeps that game, at least in my opinion, playable are the plot twist cards because there are certain sort of just there's a certain pattern and rhythm to how that game seems to unfold even when you add in some of the choices you make with the minions that it doesn't equal the same thing I, in other words i don't know if you've played nefarious or what your experience has been with that mm-hmm. but that game fell a little flat for me despite the fact that you know when i initially looked at it and saw this sort of minion mechanism and the plot twist i thought ah oh, you know, this game is going to be another just fantastic, you know, a new experience every time. And yet it seemed to start playing out relatively the same uh, after a while, with the exception of just this, you know, minor kind of a, a twist with the plot twist cards. Do you, have you played that? Or, you know, what's been your experience with that? Uh, I haven't played a whole lot of Nefarious, but I, I have been intrigued by the plot cards. And, and that's... Uh... I guess where the interest in that game lies, yeah, the the basic mechanisms can probably get a little samey, which is why those plot twist cards are necessary. They change the parameters by which you're operating the game, make things cost more or less, speed up the game, slow down the game, so you don't just have Mm -hmm. the same pattern and arc every time. So it's almost like those need to be there in order to make it at all interesting. And I do feel like there's some more space to explore in exploring those plot twist cards, but it could be that once I've been through most of them, the game itself isn't going to interest me as much. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I, I don't want to condemn the game. Um, you know, I've played it a decent amount of times, but I don't think enough, you know, certainly to do, uh, you know, a full analysis on it. But I, I, I just I'm picking at this thread of, you know, whether variability is is the key to longevity, you know, and I think there's also uh, variability that's very popular in game design now in uniqueness. You know, I think about games like Innovation where every single card is unique Mm -hmm. or, you know, so many other kinds of of games that utilize that kind of unique special powers. You know, uh, Tom was talking about that with Cosmic Encounter. You know, it's the uniqueness of the aliens, no two being alike, that drives that game uh, along with, you know, the player interaction. And in in the case of that game, there's a ton of direct player interaction uh, in that one. So uh, I think maybe, um, you know, after talking with you about this, it's something that, you know, 
is definitely to consider, but maybe it's not quite as important as I thought it was. Mm. I'd be curious to see what, you know, listeners might have to say about that idea as to how important variety and variability is in the longevity of the game. So uh, let's kind of take a look at the, uh, the, the, some of the other areas on the critical framework that I've kind of adopted there. Um, talk about things like ergonomics. Um, and, and ergonomics is something that I think is often overlooked, but something that can be extremely important. I kind of liken ergonomics in games, Eric, to this idea of you can have a really good movie, and if you have a bad soundtrack mm. or bad music... It can ruin the movie, yeah. even though the movie is good. However, sometimes you don't notice the fact that the soundtrack or the music is great in a movie because it sort of becomes part of the experience itself. And this is where I think ergonomics lives. I think when you, when you notice ergonomics, it's usually the bad things. So how would you rate Merchant of Venus? Let's talk about the original version first and then the Fantasy Flight version. How would you rate it um, ergonomically as far as is it fiddly? Um, is it difficult to set up and play? Um, how would you rate that aspect of this game? Well, uh, I should note that it's kind of interesting. I have never played this game on an original Avalon Hill copy. Uh, I was introduced to this game on a Avalon Hill style copy that a friend constructed, uh, print and play, and then I built my own copy based on a redesign that uh, a gentleman on Board Game Geek made with with new art. That's the version you saw me playing with at ConCon. Ah, okay. Um, All right. But I've I've looked at the original version, and uh, it it is a classic Avalon Hill design, which means little square cardboard counters, little tokens, uh, and and a lot of things looking similar. Very simple line art. Um, so in that sense, it's a lot of tokens, and it can feel a little fiddly. But once you've set things up, got all these tokens where they're supposed to be, or used uh, a plano box to organize things, mm-hmm. things start to become a little more uh, elegant in use. Uh, you're, you're selling a good, you throw it in the bag, you pull one out, and you figure out where it goes. And, and once you get into that groove, it all seems to make sense. It's not all that complicated once you get it in practice. But certainly, if you open up the box and you're looking at all of these tokens, there's a lot going on. So I guess if I have to make it a, a an out of 10, we're looking at a 7 or an 8 on ergonomics because it can be a little overwhelming at first. But once you get going, it's not too bad. Um, I, how would you rate the Fantasy Flight version? In other words, do you feel that they've I- improved on that? Or do you feel, you know, what are some bits or, or pieces of the new version that perhaps you really appreciate um, as compared to uh, even your own print-and-play version that, you know, you constructed lovingly yourself? Yeah, uh, well, certainly the ships, the plastic ships that come with the Fantasy Flight versions are really nice. Uh, I like them a lot. They, they're sort of these, these boxy, they almost look a little like Serenity uh, from Firefly. Mm, uh, you've got mm-hmm, sort of this yeah. boxy you know, spacecraft, and all of them are mounted on little bases that have arrows on them. So I, I mentioned that when you start your turn, you determine where you are going with your ship. You say, I'm headed this direction. So it's very simple. You just take your piece and you rotate it in the direction you want to go. Rather than saying, well, I'm going to this blue dot first, you just turn your ship. Simple as that. Uh, obviously, component quality from the original Avalon Hill to the Fantasy Flight is a, going to be a big jump 
because Fantasy Flight's components are, you know, much thicker cardboard, much larger tokens. Uh, whether you like the art design of the new design of the board is debatable. Some people really like the classic retro feel of the original game. Uh, so that's sort of a, a wash, depending on which one you like better. However, there are some more fiddly aspects to the Fantasy Flight mm. version. Um, they they okay. revamped the uh, hazard system. In the original game, hazards are simply a little starburst that cost you money when you hit them. When you hit the space, you either stop and start again from there on your next turn uh, without paying anything, or you pay the penalty and continue moving. You can also get shields that reduce that penalty. So if you have a shield that knocks 20 off of the hazards and you hit a 40 hazard, you pay 20 and move on. And that's, that's it. You can also get uh, drives that skip all the yellow hazards, which is pretty neat too. The new Fantasy Flight version adds a whole extra layer onto these hazards. Uh, you have to have shields and you have to have lasers and you have laser values and shield values and pilot values. And when you hit one of these hazards, you have to roll a die hoping to roll below whatever your value is. So the higher your laser value, the easier it is to pass laser hazards. It's a similar concept, but it requires more die rolling. It requires a little more time to charge up your lasers, to buy lasers and shields at the different cultures. And it's stuff like that 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 can make it a little more fiddly. It's less elegant than the original game. In fact, it, I should probably just state that the Fantasy Flight New Edition feels it feels like Merchant of Venus, but it is a very different game from the original. Hmm. Now, I was under the impression that the Fantasy Flight version of the game basically included the original with like no changes to it and then the sort of new version with you know tweaks and modifications that fantasy flight either made themselves or that had become almost standard practice from players of this game so is that true or did i did i not hear that correctly in other words is that original kind of version with that elegance you're speaking of not in the box well you're close uh the the version or the the box does contain two versions of the game there is the new Fantasy Flight Edition, which was designed by Rob Kuba, uh, based on the original Hamblin design. And that has the, the extra Fantasy Flight Chrome, lots more variation. Some things I really do like uh, in the new version. On the other side is the what they call the classic version, but it is not identical to the Avalon Hill. There are some minor mm. changes. Uh, I mentioned that there were uh, some A's and B's. In the original game, the planets were numbered 1 through 10, with a couple of A's and B's. You had a 4A and a 4B and a 1A and a 1B. Uh, and in the new version, they've simply numbered them 1 through 14. And instead okay. of delivering to the next three numbers in sequence, they deliver to the next four or five numbers in sequence. It's pretty clear. It's all on every token. You, you pick up one token, and it says where it sells to. It's not a huge deal. Uh, they have changed a couple of minor things on the board. They've changed the way some passengers work in the game. Uh, aside from one board element that I think is an omission, I think it's an error that they have on the board. There's a space that's supposed to hold a port. It's supposed to be a spot where you can buy a spaceport on this particular system. And it doesn't show that you can purchase a spaceport there. Um, I think you can easily just house rule that and say, well, a spaceport can go here. It's fine. Other than that, I think they're all minor changes. 
and they have pretty faithfully recreated the rule book for the classic version. So if you're looking for a game that is really close to the original, it's in the box. It's not identical, but it's really close. Well, that sounds great because, you know, listening to the way you're describing it, and, you know, it's funny, you you used my favorite word, one of my favorite words that uh, I, I'm coming to know and love as I uh, work with uh, guests such as yourself who are, are kind enough to share their insights about games, is this idea of elegance, you know, and there, there are quite uh, a few games that uh, have come out that I feel are rather inelegant or overblown or convoluted. Mm. And then there are games that seem to have a relatively simple rule set. And yet the depth in the play is derived from the play itself, not from the rules. And I kind of was uh, attracted by what you said there, where you said, you know, once you get going... The game really isn't all that complicated. It's not that fiddly. It's pretty straightforward. And, you know, I I think that that might be another thing that I'm finding is common, Eric, in in a lot of the games that people want to talk to me about is that the rules themselves are fairly simple, um, all things considered. And the depth of the game comes from the play itself rather than from this sort of artificial construct of complexity that is layered like the layers of a cake or something, uh, one on top of the other until you get this sort of, uh, you know, kind of large, unwieldy sort of mess, I guess. So would you say that, you know, how would you rate the rule set to Merchant of Venus? Is it a relatively simple game? Like, how difficult is it for you to teach it to a new player? Uh, Well, I've got a a pretty good spiel down as far as teaching the rules to this game. There are, uh, you know, little uh, hiccups that that take a little bit more time to explain. And if you were trying to learn this from the rules, this is a classic Avalon Hill rule book with Mm -hmm. rule 9.4.1. And... And that can be a right. little daunting to try and learn from the rules. And so I find it, it best. I learned because someone taught me this game. And I found it very intuitive once I got going. But when you, you know, first open the box, like I said, it's a little overwhelming if you're looking at the rule book. And I think, going back to the Fantasy Flight classic version, that Fantasy Flight has streamlined the rule book very well in this new edition as well. And it is not a block of text in black and white. It is uh, much clearer. It's got lots of pictorial examples. And and I think uh, I'll be interested to hear how easily people pick up that classic version based on the new rulebook. So you think that's another area where there's been quite a lot of improvement then perhaps from the original to the newer Fantasy Flight edition? Yeah, and in fact, it's kind of interesting because before the Fantasy Flight version was even announced, uh, there was sort of a project to redesign the rulebook. Uh, There was this, I mentioned, the fan-made redesign, and uh, some people to complement that fan-made redesign of the board and the components also tried to redesign the rulebook, and they were going through and trying to find better ways to phrase things. And I think the team at Fantasy Flight may have used some of that as a jumping-off point for their version of the rule set. Fantastic. So, uh, you know, I think any time that you can get a, a classic game such as this and um, you're able to change uh, the 
rule set to something that is much more in line with the sort of modern sensibilities of rule books, which to my mind is much more graphical in nature. And as you mentioned, with lots of examples and, uh, you know, a lot of those kind of sidebar texts, I think that's only going to, you know, improve the game as a whole, because I kind of grew up with some of those Avalon Hill rule books. I mean, I played, you know, games like Panzer Blitz and Squad Leader. And so I know exactly what you're talking about when you have that 9.5.1.1, you know, (laughs) 9.5.1.2. And, you know, that wall of text, as you called it, is something that can be quite daunting. So I'm really glad to hear that they've, they've made some improvements to that, because uh, I think that sometimes when you aren't fortunate enough to have someone who is experienced with the game teach it to you, uh, it, it really is crucial to have a superior rule book and something that's going to have a lot of clarity to it. So, you know, for example, you know, after talking with you this evening, it's clear to me that, you know, I really want to try this game and will probably eagerly be awaiting the Fantasy Flight uh, a release of this. Um but I'm going to be the one that's going to have to teach it. So <laughs> I'm very kind of glad that, you know, you're, you're telling me that, you know, this is going to be a little bit smoother experience than it might have been had I managed to score an older copy or, or made my own. Sure. So, Eric, uh, you know, I, I think we've kind of taken a pretty good look at this game. We, we've taken a look at its uh, longevity and the things that you believe that led to that, the, um, the, the sort of strategy versus tactics uh, talk. Uh, we've discussed the player interaction, the decision space. And, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts with me about this game. But before I let you go, there, there's one question that I always want to ask, which is, is there anything that we haven't discussed yet that you wish was always part of Merchants of Venus or something that you wish had been changed or fixed or whatever word you want to use about the game? Is there room for improvement in this game? Ah, uh, well, it's, it's an interesting question because it's not a perfect game. Uh, luck, as we said, we've already discussed, plays a huge factor and there are times that you can really get hosed in the game. And, and it can be a little frustrating if somebody, one of your other players, uh, you know, gets a whole bunch of really great relics. And you do exactly the same thing, hitting as many of those question points as they did, but all you get are hazards. And that can be frustrating, but I think that's part of the charm of the game. The, the new Fantasy Flight version does try to address this in one of its mechanisms, those uh, really cool relics aren't just part of the encounter spaces anymore. They're actually rewards for completing missions in the game. So you may need to fly to a planet with a certain level of laser power or or hit a certain number of hazard spaces in a, in a zone in the board. And then you draw one of these trophy cards that may be one of those relics that are very useful. So it's more of a reward than a lucky windfall in the new Fantasy Flight version. I kind of like that. That appeals to me. But... It's hard to say right now whether that's just because it's new and different or whether it's, it's actually an improvement on the original. The flaws in the original, I think, are part of its charm. Yeah, that's interesting because I don't think I've ever had anybody answer the question in that way. Um, you know that, that, that the flaws are part of its charm, but uh, I, I think I understand what you're saying. You know, is that 
the game is partially a- an experience game, it sounds like you're saying to me. And, yeah. and that there's going to be a story that you're going to be able to tell after you've played this game. And it could be a story of just fantastic luck and victory and awesomeness, mm-hmm. or it could be a story of uh, sadness, woe. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no profitability and uh, being you know, beaten about quite a bit. So, yes. uh, you know, there, there's, there's a definite narrative then you would feel kind of arc to this game, yes? Oh, absolutely. I always talk about this as being a three-act game. You've got that initial exploration phase everyone just ready set go and explore known space and then you've got the middle part where you kind of know where things are and you start to figure out those patterns if i go to this planet then i can sell here and then i can sell that good here and i can sell that good here and that kind of makes sense so now i need to raise the money to put a spaceport here so i don't have to land on the planet and and you're starting to figure this out and you start racing for those demands and at the end it's an all-out race where demands play a huge part as you maybe do you stick with your route that you've already planned out or do you go for those lucrative clusters of cash and try and beat the other guy there is your plan going to be thwarted on your regular route because some guy's going to take the the demands that you're going for or buy all of the goods at the planet you're heading to that's a really neat arc to the game as you race to the finish. And like you said, you have a story to tell at the end. I've had some that I, I just barely snatched victory from the other guys and snuck up behind and won. And I've had others where I wanted to fire my engine crew and throw them out the airlock. <laughs> but it's always fun. <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing uh, your story and your history uh, with Merchants of Venus. I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to be on the show and talking with me about it this evening. And uh, do you know when when it is supposed to be hitting uh, the store shelves? The last word I heard is that it is currently on the boat, uh, which could mean anything in the next couple of months. Uh, I heard earlier that they're aiming for Essen, but uh, I wasn't able to get a solid confirmation from Fantasy Flight when I spoke with them at Gen Con. So I think we're, we're looking at a couple of months uh, somewhere probably before the end of the year. Fantastic. Well, uh, I hope that I get a chance to uh, perhaps run into you at ConCon next year, and maybe we'll see if we can get a game of Merchants of Venus in. Sign up so, early. I, <laughs> I will. Is this early enough, Eric, is really the question. <laughs> I don't think they've, they've got the website updated yet. I don't think it's going to work. <laughs> but I do think I am probably going to be running... Uh, a a classic version of the game and a new version of the game. I I think it kind Uh of needs to go that route because now you have two versions that are different enough that they kind of will have different audiences. So I think I'm going to be running two different versions of this game. All right, well, I'll tell you what then. You need to sign me up for the classic version because (laughs) as an older guy, I find great comfort in things that are classic. I will will (laughs) let you know when the events go live on ConCon, yeah. There we go, there we go. And, uh, you know, so I want to thank you again for being on the show. And, of course, I want to, uh, of course, send a special shout-out to uh, 2d6.org for their generous hosting of the Longview podcast. And Merchant of Venus, I... I am quite sure will be available as soon as it is released at gamesurplus.com so thanks to 2d6.org thank you to www.gamesurplus.com for their generous support of the long view and eric thank you very much for joining me this evening you bet jeff it's been a pleasure 
Thank you very much. So for Eric Summerer and myself, thank you for listening and good night.